Norwich, London, Nottingham, Oxford, Northampton, Glasgow, Guildford, Leeds, Salford, Cardiff. We're coming your way in 2023. And if you would like to join us and be there and watch High Performance Live, our brand new theatre show, then just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com to get tickets. They're selling fast, so move now. Thehighperformancepodcast.com and we'll see you live in 2023. I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance, our conversation for you every week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's all there. We help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to three of the biggest sports stars in English football so they can be your teacher. Today, this awaits you. I remember coming on at Old Trafford and getting booed by my by the own, my own fans, and um, it was probably a little bit of that between Liverpool and Man United, like that kind of rivalry. But that was obviously crept into the stands. So my mum and dad and sister in the crowd and the whole England, the whole stand and the whole the whole stadium are, are booing me because of you know maybe a little campaign sort of against me mm. to not be in England squad. Let's be honest, right? I'm I'm. 24 year old kid right I'm getting booed by my own fans and I'm thinking about my mum as I'm coming on to play for England I never enjoyed the games I enjoy training I, I, like, I like training and stuff I love training every day but I've never come out of a squad and go I absolutely love that camp because there was things that weren't, weren't good about the camp and there was the game where like I say we never had a game where I went you know what we are uh, we're, a, we're a problem for everyone play anyone we could beat anyone didn't feel like that Premier League at that time was war. It was two, like four, five really, really good teams, and at the core of that was were, were English players, and I, and I feel that like it was detrimental to the to the England team how competitive the Premier League was. When we get on that plane to leave Qatar with the trophy or without a trophy, you make sure that you have no regrets. You you live it from now until then. So when you're 15 years down the line working in media, you know, we can all pat you on the back as legends. You know what? This is a cool and rare opportunity to get three of the Lions together. From that era where we were so excited about English football and so many of us believed that these were the guys to do what hasn't been done since 1966 and to bring a major trophy back home to England, we thought they were going to bring football home. However, it didn't happen. And over the next hour or so, you're going to hear the truth, the unfiltered truth about why it didn't happen, what they learned, what could have been different and why they now believe things are different for this England team. You know, the cool thing about this episode was getting the three guys together so they could bounce off each other, so they could share their learnings, so they could learn from each other. It was a really unique and different episode, actually, of the High Performance Podcast. But I think it's one with loads of learning. I think it's one that you're really going to enjoy in partnership with BT Sport. This is Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand and Peter Crouch on the High Performance Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. First of all, welcome to High Performance. We want to have a conversation that the current England team or the current England squad could learn from, from three men who have done so much for their country and represented England with, um, with great credit. When I talk about playing for England, first of all, I'd love to hear from all three of you about the emotion that that brings up. What's the first thing you think about when I talk about your England careers? I don't know. For me personally, I, was, I just thought I am one of the best players in the country now. Because you never really think about that when you're on your way up and you're on a journey to, to get to the pinnacle, which was playing for your country. I, I was growing up at West Ham at the academy there. Joe was just underneath. And it's like, that's an achievement to get in the West Ham first team and then you're setting new targets. And it's always like, England's the one though. Because like, at, at that point, you're not thinking about winning. It's just getting into the first team, becoming a pro. And then if you can get into the England team and set your new goals and achieve that. And when that call comes, or the facts that I got, it was just like... First, you want to tell your mum. We spoke about this the other day, mm. didn't we? You, you want to tell your mum. Go home and tell your mates on your estate. And then you, you do settle into your, your bed or your sofa or at some point on that day and go, right, I am actually one of the best in this in the world, in, in this country. Like, Yeah, I, I've got to take, take that on. I remember South Africa World Cup uh, 2010. I was on the golf course and I remember getting a call from Franco Baldini saying that um, you're going to the World Cup. And I've got the call, and then he said, by the way, you're going to be number nine, right? So then obviously I straight away, the first person I call is my dad always. I call my dad and I say, Dad, I'm going to the World Cup, and I'm wearing number nine. And, he got, and then obviously like he put it in perspective for me, because I thought, you know, great, man, it's the World yeah. Cup, that was all I thought about. Then he thought, actually, he broke it down for me and said, think about how many boys and girls like play football in England or English who dream of playing for England think of how many people make it as a professional footballer think of how many people get the chance to play for England then think of how many people get the chance to play for England in a World Cup and then think about how many people want to wear the number nine yeah. and I'm like on that on this particular occasion it was me <laughs> <laughs> and then like when he broke it down like that I started getting goosebumps and thinking oh my god like wait, uh, is it, this is really prestigious and then Capello proceeded to play me for three minutes in the whole tournament. <laughs> <laughs> you must knowing you was going up for the next tee shot, you must have been confident. Mate, it was on England's the 18th. number nine. I wasn't answering for, for the first 18. Obviously, you don't answer your phone, do you? On the 18th, I went, what is this number? And then I thankfully answered it. <laughs> what, was, what was the next shot like? Though? No, no, I was done. I was like, I was coming off the green. Oh, and I answered it. Yeah. But yeah. Just a few but, beers then straight no, away. Without, without doubt. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah similar, similar to what the boys said I think 
playing for England was really important to me because where I like we talked about the other night, but where I lived, I used to go and watch England. I used to get on the tube and go and watch England and the 1990 World Cup was pivotal for me. Watching Gaza play and do what he did was like, right. I remember thinking in, in my bedroom watching it, like, I want to be that. I want to be Gaza. I want to go to the World Cup. And and then so when you get the call to play for England eventually, that's all I could think of. I just want to do, if I could just leave something, a little memory, because remember Platt's volley? We, I Belgium, guarantee Belgium. all of us, yeah. after that goal went out, we'd have gone out onto the estate and got the lads to throw the ball up and try and do that volley. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then the fact, the thought of I've got the opportunity to do something He's like that. He's leading us to his volley against just Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, <laughs> is that what you're going? You've just ruined it for me. Like <laughs> <laughs> so that's where it made We've had all these stories you know before. I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, this could have been in any pub in East uh, London. I just if we reeled you all in there. No, but like just being able to pull that shirt on, play for England and, and be able to do something like that was amazing Dream. and how soon though does it go from like the pleasure of play being picked for England to then wanting to win for England straight away really you get mm. business immediately you, you get there and it's like do you know what I was lucky I, I, I was almost used to being around the England squad because I went as like a 16 year old to the Euros um, Euro 98 in England where it was like a magnificent tournament and they got to the semis and I was there for like probably about 8 or 9 days as a young kid, introducing you to the England setup, but it's a young kid who they think's got potential. So it was like, so when I went there, it was I, I didn't really have that bedding in period where a bit nervous still, but I, I'd been here type thing. So I was very much like, okay, I want to get get in the team now. I, I weren't there just happy to be there as a one of the squad players. I was thinking that I, I think I should play. I think I should be in. And it's you you, you look around the dressing room and you're thinking like I, I'd like Gareth Southgate, Tony Adams, Sol Campbell. Martin Kieran and people out there in front of me but I actually thought I should be playing and it was weird and I actually ended up coming on my debut for um, Gareth Southgate he got injured and um, and it's weird to say but you're sitting there delighted in a way it's bad but listen, I hope he's alright but thanks hmm. and then you go on and you do your thing and you hope they never see that player again that's interesting because Glenn done that Glenn Oda would have been manager bringing the young players in and Terry Venables and then we didn't do that under Sven did we we never no. never saw a young player and then all of our era and then St George's Park when you go up there now they're all close to it's it like, integrated. they're all integrated so it immediately takes out that, that sort of any nerves that these young lads going to play for England would have because they've been around it they've seen Harry Kane they've seen Raheem Sterling they know them they've had a coffee with them in you know, so it's, it, I think it's, that's vital for the success going forward. My, my mindset was totally different to these boys, I'll be honest, because uh, Joe and Rio were like 18, 19. I think everyone knew they were going to play for England. You know, like Stephen Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen. You, you, you know that they're on a path to play for England. Like mine was different. You know, I went round about, I wasn't ready for the Premier League till I was 23. Um, you know, I played in it, but I wasn't ready for it. So when I got in England squad, it was the, it was the, back end of a season and it was like uh, the tour of America a lot of people dropped out you know but I thought this is my chance yeah, <laughs> as you're an experienced international that's your right you know but for me I thought this is my chance mm. there's two games and my mindset was I've got to play both of them so I'm not a one cat wonder yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that was genuinely yeah. because I thought you know there's was that a fear was it a proper no, fear of course yeah. it was I don't want to be that one person who gets one cap you know um, and I got injured for the first game and my debut was in the second game in USA and I, I, I did quite well um, but then obviously my next I got called up to the next one and thankfully you know my England career sort of progressed but I looked at it like Rio's talking about you know with ultra confidence that he should be playing every single game mine was 
I know I'm not better than Wayne Rooney or Michael Owen. I'm happy with that. But my goal was to be the best of the rest. You know, they both were quite injury prone. And I knew that if I was just behind them at everybody, so I'm talking, you know, Jermaine Defoe, um, Carlton Gold, Carl got in there for a through, Dean Ashton got in there. Um, Darren Bench. So you're, you know, saying, you're, these, you're, so you're saying you're better than them? I'm saying my goal was to be better than... You was better than them, what, you say, is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is... <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm the, I'm the next best, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was my mindset. So what I love about this is that all three of you, when I say the moment you get called up for England, like your eyes light up. I remember having a conversation on, uh, on BT with Rio and Frank and Stephen. And I remember Stephen saying something really interesting. He said, playing for England was hard. It wasn't enjoyable. And then I speak to Coutinho, who goes away with Brazil, and they love it. And we never had that with England. So I think the, the natural progression for this conversation is you go from, oh my goodness, I'm going to play for my country, and you first, at the age of six, kick in a football dream of that moment. Why are you all now sitting here, having had brilliant England careers, but you never lifted a trophy for England? What wasn't right in your era? I think one of the biggest things was the media. We never had a relationship with the media, and that's where you have to say Gareth Southgate's done a, and what a remarkable that, why, why job. Why was that a problem? Every single manager I played for had a problem with the issues with the, with the media. They were leaking stories about it, certain players who were misbehaving, probably, definitely. Um, but also, it just felt like it was them against us. It wasn't like we're going to the World Cup or the Euros together. Whereas the last couple of tournaments, it's felt like the media have gone and said, you know what, we're in this together, guys. And he, he's created that. Gareth Southgate and that squad have created that. And talking to Stevie, I, I remember we come on a coach after a game away somewhere and we played and we didn't play particularly well, none of us. And we're sitting there, I think we, I don't know if we got beat or whatever, but he come on the bus and I remember him getting up, putting his bag down, sitting down and went, that'll probably be out of four in the paper tomorrow. Like... But that, that type of comment was like, that's one of the first things on your mind as an England player then. It's not conducive to a good working environment to be the best, to be elite, to be a winning team because you're worried about the reaction of the media who are so powerful at that time, especially in our country. Bearing in mind, there was no social media then. So w what they said was the gospel. It wasn't like you can say stuff now in the media and these papers can write stuff or people can say stuff. Pundits like ourselves can speak players have a voice now and a platform to go no that ain't right or I don't agree with that so and I don't know we we weren't good enough really was we yeah I do think there's an element of it was uh the the, the competitiveness of the Premier League I think if I look at like Rio Bex Gary Neville Skulls you know you've got you know, JT Lamps Joe Stevie Cara like that at the Premier League at that time was war it was two like four five really really good teams and at the core of that was were, were English players and I, and I feel that like it was detrimental to the to the England team how competitive the Premier League was and how much you wanted to get one over on, on did those you, particular did you, teams. I, I, I felt that, but I've never heard it from someone. Did you feel that when you was in the squad? Yeah, yeah, I think you could see it. Like for me, I was quite new to it. And um, I, I think certainly the Manchester Liverpool thing is a thing right yeah. <laughs> having played for Liverpool as soon Liverpool, as you signed there he was an enemy you were exactly right so Alex Ferguson would, that, would, would put that in your head mm. the same as you know anyone from Liverpool you know and even the regional thing no matter about the, 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 the team the teams and how successful they are but as places you know it's just a thing and I think it's less far less fractured 
just now, you know, that they look like they all get on. They all like like they're not at war every Saturday. You know, remember those games that we played in the Champions League? Those that was all out like intense, you know, like, intense, mentally games. exhausting, intense. Yeah. And the two managers, you know, were rivals. Everyone was rivals. And then you meet up for England. Like, how are you going to leave that at the door and then be a team? Yeah. To be fair, like I I, I listen to what the boys say, but I, I think it's more. From a pragmatic, I just think tactically we, 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 we'd fallen behind. You know, and you have to remember Glenn, you know, then, then Kevin Keegan come in and he didn't, he went a bit old school, Kevin. And then we went on to Sven. Sven was doing the stuff 442. Rigid. Rigid stuff that I was doing at 14. At 14, I had a said, this ain't right. You know, I'm, I watch Italian football, you know, when they're, they're playing in triangles, they're playing out from the back, players are taking responsibility. And we'd go, I'd go away with England from the age of under 15s, uh, right the way through every level, and we wouldn't have control of the games, but I know we'd have better players, technically, physically, like mentally. Like the, all of the England team, all them names you listed Rio, John, Frank, Stevie, Rooney. Elite players, no doubt. I've played with the best players in the world. We all have like been fortunate enough to do that. And they're as good as them, you know. But tactically, I just think it was a case where we was going the wrong way down a road of how we believe football should be played so far. And we'd all been brought up in that sort of system. So when it comes to international football, it was we wasn't set up to win international football. We could win a game off of brilliance of, a, of an England player. You know, whether it be a, a Beckham free kick, Stevie scoring a wonder goal, whatever. But I just think the system in place was fragile. It wasn't... If I asked you, did did you ever play in an easy England game where you come off and you went, that was like nah. the easiest game, like you didn't even mm. get a sweat on. Mm. For our clubs, you could name loads of games. You probably forgot more than yeah. you'd remember how many easy games you had. Mm. With England, it was never easy. I always used to think this is graft. Go to like Moldova. And come mm. off sweating, thinking, "Jesus, we oh, got through that one." Why? Because tactically, we were we were we were so poor. Like we were so rigid. I remember. What Capello's- was our patterns of play? Do, do you remember? Do, uh, no, no one ever there sat me no down and gone, play, "Right, when you get the ball, you need to have this, this, this option." When the goalie gets the ball, you need to be here. When Rio gets the ball, you can be here or here. And, and you know, like you see with players now, there's clear patterns. The it's like standard for even the poor teams. You can see what they're trying to do. With us, I don't know what we were trying we to do. We relied on individuals. You look at the big games you- we won. Like Crouchy scored the goals in the in the, in the, the World Cup. It's like individual brilliance, mm. isn't it? It's, it's just because Crouchy's there and knows where to be instinctively. It ain't like, oh, we've, we've worked to get in that position to then play. Mm. It was just like, get it there and then someone will be there to finish it off. Michael Owen in the World Cup. Did you ever feel you could go and challenge tactics or discuss them in more detail with the coaches? No. no well, F- Fabio Capello, no. Mm. I remember he screamed at Theo Walcott that first session. Do you remember? Mm. Theo Walcott turned like a ghost when <laughs> I recovered. Because he said before the session, he's like, he played right wing. He said, I don't want you to run inside. We was in Australia, Austria before South Africa. Mm. He said, I don't want my wingers to come inside. Stay wide. Stay wide. He really went on about mm. it. John, that point home and the first whistle, the first player of the game, <laughs> Theo's run inside and he stopped the session, screamed, going nuts. Mm. I remember Theo getting on the coach after going, oh, wow. Yeah. <sighs> so scared. Like, What does that do then to the rest of the players who who are established internationals who should be able to share their yeah, thoughts or their views. Culture went like that. No, nah, like again, we, 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 the boys are right in the sense there was a disjointedness between Liverpool, Manchester United and Chelsea players and Crouchy's right. There was massive 
rivalries that don't exist now. That was, but I really think it was the tactical side of things. And if you go on to Capello, who, by the way, has been a genius and what a career he's had. You know, you can't disregard what he's done. But my problem with Capello, when I was fit, he played me, apart from the World Cup, like went to 2010. But the way that he didn't live in England, I thought, which, if you're an England manager, you've got to be, you've got to lead like Gareth does. He, he, you know, he's a, he's a, He's more, he's a figure, isn't he? He talks well. He, he he's part of St George's Park. You know, like I said, I just think there wasn't no care and attention. It it turned up when it was close to an England game, and then what done me was at the World Cup when they was all watching Italy, like hollering and hooting when they scored. Like I just think that the foresight of of that wasn't great. It, it was not good optics. It bothered you. It bothered me. Yeah. As an Englishman, you know, and I just think there's there's a reason why it must have bothered some people above because since then we've not gone for a for a manager, I firmly believe that, especially now in the current climate where you could have the ability to develop coaches, there was a scarcity of good managers and coaches to take the job when Fabio and Sven got the job that we didn't have enough. But nowadays, there's no excuse to not produce managers and coaches to come like Gareth Southgate. The next run of them will be Potter, Eddie Howe, Frank, Stevie, Scotty Parker. If you, you know, look at them now, though, you, you obviously do a bit of coaching and stuff, yeah. but you see the coaches on the way they coach now and you go to watch any kind of academy games the football is replicating what you've seen in the Premier League with yeah. Man City type football and, and what Potter's produced at Brighton etc it's all fluid through the lines playing through the, it's, there's no long ball game really now but you can see how much they've worked on that in, yeah. in training yeah. and I know look, like it's slightly diff- different when you've got um, a group for maybe a week or 10 days it's not you can't work on it every single day but I don't remember working on on much yeah. Set pieces, set pieces, and and defending. But uh, if you if you took England, if you if you can get back in time machine and take an England team from two thousand and two, and think you have got all these great players, be think and what's been the problem handling the ball in tournaments at important times? So you, you ain't got to tell Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, how to defend Ashley Cole, Gary Neville, like they they, they can play in the back four. So I think the time would have been better off used to implementing. Patterns of play, how to hold mm. on to the ball, encouraging players. I and I think we're still not good at this, where we don't get the the technical players. We've still to this day, and I love Gareth and what he's done is amazing and and everything. But technical players who can handle the ball, like there's still a mistrust that comes from historically. Mm. Like you know, we talk players like Madison, Grealish, Mount, Foden. They can't all play, but at least two of them should be on the pitch at all times for England, possibly three. Handling the ball. I think this thing, that, that's a good point in terms of handling the ball, but it's also our generation for definite was never brought up and this generation's a bit better, but still nowhere near what Spain and Italy and France are like. We were ne- always taught, do not pass the ball to a man with someone marking him. Mm. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna win, you need to pass the ball to people that are marked to be able to take that man mm. out of the game. Sometimes, you know what I mean, and if you have got someone under a bit of pressure, give it to him. Be confident to give it to him. Whereas, mm. that's where you end up going away from what your principles are and your mm. values are as a team because you're not confident and you, you remember you're not you told don't give it to him. It's risk to pass it into someone who's marked. And so, I think there's a lot of things reasons why we didn't win. I think definitely I agree with the guys. I think the the, the, the tacticals of our team and the generation was was bad for the players we had. Um, but I do feel that the environment wasn't the right environment to create a winning team. So can I ask you around that then? Because when we interviewed Gareth, he spoke to us around, he tried to break down this club versus country and make it club and country. 
And one of the ways he'd done it was by getting players to tell a little bit of their own story so you can mm. see more what you have in common rather than what divides you, like club mm. loyalties. So was anything ever done like that in terms of breaking down barriers or have, you know, you're in hotels where you've got all this time. <clears throat> was anything ever done where people can tell a little few, bit of their background? A few drinks in the bar after games. That was it. And that, that was, th- to be fair, that was the tool used mainly to, you know, break down barriers, social lubricant, have a little drink. It was good though, wasn't it? It was good. <laughs> <laughs> but there was nothing done like, like you said, that, that is Gareth Southgate, a proud Englishman who clearly loves the job, who's not leaving a stone unturned in doing everything to try and change the culture of what's gone on before and trying to improve on, on what's needed. And these little details, they can help. Yeah, but I, I also think it's the, to, I think the England national team has benefited from, um, a, I don't want to say less competitive Premier League, but a less aggressive Premier League, if you like. I, I think we all remember, you know, Roy Keane in the tunnel you know mm. like would that happen now you know little mm. things like that I'm talking about like horrific like, tackles flying in you know, we I don't, almost had a I fight I yeah we've, we've, we've had Anfield. fights you know we, we, we were mates with England but we were you know <laughs> things would go on on the who, pitch who, who, I, who I'd win that fight I don't well really I would you know you know, I just feel like it's. I definitely think that the Premier League is a different place now than what it was. I don't think we can. I think we can all agree on that. It's yeah. not. You know, I think it's an amazing product. It's a beautiful. We all love watching it, but it's not what it was in those days. It doesn't have the subplots that it was in our time. You knew that you was. I don't know. You, that Sanso's playing Sanso. There would be some sort of subplot, whether it's the two managers at yeah. it, or there'll be a player you know doesn't like that player, and there'll be like an aggressive a spark that could just change the whole dynamics of the game. Mm. It doesn't really seem like, and I think the reason why that isn't the same now is because one, the personalities and characters are different and their upbringings have been different, but also with social media, you're now, you're now, without ever meeting someone, you're a mate. So all of these players like each other's pictures, which is, is the culture today. They like each other's pictures and chat on, on, on Instagram, never met each other. So when they do see each other in England, it's like, what's happening? You out here? Because they've got a common place where they've been connecting. Whereas if I, I, I didn't see Karachi, home and away yeah. in the games, and then I'd see him in England, I wouldn't chat to him ever again, really. I might see him on a night out, but he wouldn't remember. He'd be too drunk. But why, <laughs> why did none of you, and, you know, there were other big leaders in the England team mm-hmm. at the time, why did nobody see this and change this? We, we, go back to 2010, and, you know, we talked about, why didn't anyone go to the manager? JT would try... Was, was try, tried to speak to the manager and he, he was the captain along with Rio at that time I can't remember but like big players and he just got absolute shut down right so a, a JT then come out and was and he did an interview before one of the World Cups and he was like well you know I can't even remember the, 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 he was like we're going to have a chat with the manager about something in the meeting the press must have asked the question the results were bad and then and then we had this meeting arranged with Capello where it was going to be the players and the manager and we was going to have a conversation about what we can do. And we turned up and then he just went, go to dinner. And that was it. And I'm like, probably could have been handled a bit better in terms of how you ask about it. But if you, we could have had a really forthright conversation just before a World Cup and we could have got aired things. You know, the, the culture was different though. The culture was different because that's like, it was almost like these managers then probably saw it more like you're questioning my the way I rule but this other team nations were able to win 
tournaments and competitions. Like they mm. were doing something that mm. England weren't. Like there was chalk and cheese, wasn't it? We had Sven, which was so relaxed, and then and then we were getting it was getting labelled like player power. Players are running the show, yeah. you know, and and so they went so far the other way. So you weren't allowed to speak to Fabio Capello because he he ruled it with an iron fist. It was like we, it was like we had this that didn't work, so we're going to have this now, and we were just told this is how we do it until things started going badly at a World Cup. And all the, you know, kind of things that were banned or stopped were, were, were allowed to, we, he tried to relax us because he realised he, he sort of panicked during mid-tournament that we weren't performing. And Sven, Sven was bringing sh like shirts to get signed by Bex though, wasn't he, remember? <laughs> <laughs> he was the English England manager, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Getting shirts, like Bex to sign mm. shirts, like I was almost like... And what was your perception of that when you seen a manager do that? I just turned away in disgust. I was like, whoa. Like, because mm. the England manager's like, he's the he's the man, isn't it? He's like, your manager is like, you look at him as if he's, mm. he's the rules of roost. He directs where we're going. He's like, looks at no man in this team with like admiration or would show that, oh, bit of a star, bit of an icon there. It just mm. felt like that was the, I was like, wow. It's just, it was mad as well. It's, it is weird this, but Bex is an absolute superstar. And we're all happy and that's fine. That's not a problem. But it's mad. We used to laugh at it as a team because I remember we got off the coach once and Bex got off the coach and all of our security just went with Bex. And the whole team is standing there and, like that, and there's like fans coming from all over the place. And they're going, like, we're all getting marauded by all these fans. Pictures here, there. And you look around and Bex is just... It wasn't his fault. <laughs> just the security was like, he's the, he's the superstar. Got to look hard. But like, it was... It, isn't it for me? I didn't give a, a, a hell about anything like that. They weren't don't bother me. But when you look at it afterwards, with hindsight, and you think, okay, there must have been some people but subconsciously, together, right? In the same yeah, hotel, but subconsciously, so some people might go flipping. Oh, yeah, I was one rule for him, one for us. It's like, and then it just that, that that's just a little tweak in the ambience then and the environment and the culture that it changes. It could be a problem for as and a contribute to why you didn't become successful. Not the the be all and end all, but if you know what I mean. So that World Cup in 2010 that you're describing it, like if you take Spain as an example mm. at the time when Mourinho and Barcelona, Mourinho's Madrid and Barcelona yeah. were at loggerheads and there's that story that um, the, the goalkeeper Casillas and Xavi had just connected on a private phone call because mm. they'd gone back through the youth ranks and they yeah. agreed to stop the enmity to bring the squad mm. together for the World Cup. Yeah. Did any of the players ever get together privately? If you've not got the manager that's encouraging it, did any of you reach out and try and build I, these bonds? I didn't, but like I said, I, I could, I could sense now looking back that the things, but because of my character, I didn't. I was always a bit of a floater anyway. I could go and mix, mingle with anyone. Like I knew Rio very well. I knew Michael Carrick. Very, he was my roommate for four years at West Ham. So um, yes, yeah, so and I didn't feel like I wasn't like one of the main. I wasn't in the leadership group, like one of the main people. So I wasn't really, I'm going to go, if I'd have started a group chat, go like, right, let's, 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 let's go, what's Coley doing? <laughs> Come on, mate. Oh, I feel like I'm in that boat as well. <laughs> Made a laugh me out of the room. Uh, but I just, I didn't, yeah, I went along with whatever I went Can't to. Be I was just asking to be there. <laughs> Maybe you just thought this was what playing for England was like. Yeah. Almost every former England yeah. player that I now work with on the telly 
says, oh, playing for England was like scary. I was rigid. I was tight. I was anxious about the reaction yeah, to the media. That, like, I was never true. free. Is that true? I think so. For me, it was, yeah, it was until I started scoring. I always felt like I had to prove, I, I had to, every, I had to score in every game just to stay in there yeah. because I didn't fit the profile of an England player. I didn't look like an England player. You know, I was different to everything else. So I, uh, I felt like, yeah, and I felt there was, I mean, you could feel it. Even when, I remember starting the first game of the World Cup, like 2006, mm. and in the dressing room before like players were doing things that they'd never done before you know like I did I definitely felt that there was yeah. a there was a nervousness what sort of thing? you just notice things around like and I'm talking smallest details like Rio was saying like the smallest little things you think we'd have a huddle right before we went out never done that before yeah like, why, I know it's a big game but like we've never done that before so why are we doing that now just sm tiny little things do you remember yeah. no, no, I'm, oh, everyone's looking at each other like that yeah it was like <laughs> why are we in a huddle like just little things like that like before you go out and play Paraguay in the, in the opening game yeah. and like you just think that's, that's nervousness you know like, and I, I don't know it's just it breeds and, and, and you can feel it and but it showed you there was no real leadership from the top from the manager then because I think the managers drive it I think all the clubs that I played at, the manager drove the way the team carried himself and there was a reflection of the manager. And the England team, we didn't even have real, a real identity under Sven and, and under Capello. It was, it, was, it was just, your identity was all wrong because of the person who was in charge and you reflected that person. With, with Sven, we were quite a nervous team at times. Do you know what I mean? We were, we were, uh, we were placid in everything we'd done, passive in the way that we played. We just relied on the individuals to come in and produce a performance or a moment. We got to the World Cup because of Bex against Greece. If Bex doesn't play, we don't go. It's just an individual's performance who got us there. It's crazy, but that's just how, how we were. So it shows you that the functionality of the whole team was wrong. So if you look back now then, what do sorry, you think? Sorry, and just to go back God, to the point sorry. about Xavi and, and um, Casillas, I respect that because that's a maturity to address, see it and then address it. I think we were too club dominant. We, it's like almost thinking we're going to go back to our clubs. What's the gaffer going to say? What's the fans going to say? Because they didn't, our, our fans didn't, they did, they'd, they'd, they'd say bomb the England team and come play for United. That's the way it was back then. That's and what Alex Ferguson encouraged as well, yeah. right? So the same as, as, as most of the club managers, I think, yeah. they don't care about your national oh. team, do they? There's yeah. no, absolutely no care given yeah. at all it, towards it, that. In the same sense, though, the Spanish were ahead of their time tactically as well. So even like they, they won the World Cup probably despite of the, in spite of the fact that they probably weren't. And also, Xavi and Casillas' maturity coming together. So they had the tactical nous. They had the quality players and then they had the togetherness and that's why they won three tournaments. So it's like we're trying to find the, the reason why England didn't win and there's probably multiple reasons and we always have to say there maybe maybe we wasn't good enough as yeah. well individually. Look, look at some of the teams there. Do you know John, what I mean? At that yeah. time, Brazil, Brazil. You know, like our, yeah. some of the teams there, France, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Spain, have to, we have Germany. Be, yeah, we have to be yeah, proper teams. But like, so it's hard for the ego. And we might say, well, maybe we just wasn't good enough as well. So all of these things we discussed uh, have all probably played a small part of it. So Gareth Southgate's job is to make sure, he can't do nothing about the quality of players. I think we've got the quality of players, but he can put the system in place, the tactical system. He can get the environment right and he can set the culture right so that when they, like, like he has done, when he's had difficult moments at tournaments, they can come through them moments. Whereas we, when we had a difficult moment at a tournament, someone got sent off doing something rash or 
the team just broke us down and we lost our you know composure because you need to have everything to no win names. a tournament. No, it's, it's your job. <laughs> no, but, but you know the England team now. Uh, I think they're hamstrung by the way that Gareth sets them up. It's because of his fear of what could happen to the defenders. I don't think he trusts the defenders enough defensively to be able to go right, go and play. Yeah, I think he, he's he's playing like that with with the reins are still on a lot of the players. When you look look at our, our attacking players that we've got in any generation, they're top players. And you look at other teams; would they be fearful of those players if they were let off the leash? Yes, they would. I think, but because of the fragility at the back. I think that there means that there's a cautiousness to the way that Gareth is setting mm. our team the, up. The best teams we see at the moment, like leave two v two, two v two. You yeah. know, we we let's be honest, we couldn't do, we couldn't do no. that. No, and then you're going to this tournament now. Kyle Walker injured, Maguire's injured at the moment or, and out of form. John Stone's injured. They're the first three that you was going to pick probably Gareth mm. Southgate for this World Cup. He hasn't got them. He's uh, to, uh, to put out there. So where did we go now? Where do we go? 
for the next camp, the next game when we're playing a uh, San Marino at home, we're going to win the game because we can play with nine men and win the game. But if we can just get that part, we work for three days on getting that part of the team right. Bang, right, okay, we'll win the game. And there was an improvement in that, how we was getting out. You know, and then we'll take that into the next game. And then we'll go right, this the middle phase of the pitch. But it was none of that. And that's why I hear, the, I hear what the lads are saying about, the, 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 you know, that could have been solved easily. But, but if you look at the base... That goes to the point as well. You only enjoy being somewhere with football if you're winning or if you're playing well at least minimum do you know what I mean you, you could be going where it's the best atmosphere that Gareth Southgate's uh, put, put together the ambience the environment's perfect the culture's great but they're getting beat every game and they don't look like they're ever going to win a game and the, the football's rubbish no one player will come out of there going it's a great great squad though love being here they'll all hate it did so you got to get the balance. enjoy playing for England yeah I did I, I did I did I, 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 I did but I loved it. I think, like, whenever I played, like I say, I was—I knew I was sort of like a plan B at times. Yeah. But, but you can still be proud, but like actually no, enjoy. No, I, I like, enjoyed it. I, yeah, no, I, I, I did. I, I was unbelievably proud, and the pride that I took walking out, and again, like I say, knowing you're one of the best in your country, mm. um, never left me. Every time I stepped mm. out for England, every time I got called up, there was a buzz. Yeah. But. I never enjoyed the games. I enjoyed training. I, I, like, I like training and stuff. I love training every day. But I'd never come out of a squad and go, I absolutely love that camp. Mm. Because there was things that weren't, weren't good about the camp. And there was the game where, like I say, we never had a game where I went, you know what? We are uh, we're, we're a problem for everyone. Play anyone, we could beat anyone. Didn't feel like that. Yeah. yeah, no. For for me, I was just selfish in in, in many ways. I just uh, because I just thought I'm playing for England, right? And I just felt I'm playing with all these great players. And every time I pulled on an English shirt, I felt I was going to score. I felt like I was invincible playing. They couldn't for defend you, country, like, could honestly. They? Yeah. International football and Champions League football. I'd prefer to play that than I'd play in the Premier League. Yeah, like I just felt that they me couldn't too. handle me, and I felt like I really? was. I'd just go into mm. games knowing I was going to score. I like, Beckham on the right. I've got Joe Cole on the left. I've got Stevie behind me, Frank behind me. You know. Like, I felt invincible, literally. And I'm talking purely from a selfish point of view. Like, I'm not looking at the bigger picture. I'm thinking about me scoring, playing for England. And every time I went to an England game, I felt like it, I was going to score. What, what um, defenders did you play against? Do you thought, wow, these are like superstar defenders who I thought are top, top players that you went and played at international or Champions League level and thought, hold on a minute, I've just torn you apart. Mate, honestly, like... It sounds stupid, but no, I don't even know if I should go say go it. Go go I, know, I know the answer. I know the answer. That's why I've asked. No, no. <laughs> Do you know, I said this on. I said this the other day. I'd prefer to play against Nesta, right, yeah. than Gary Cahill, right? right which is which is. In, but for my qualities, you know, and what my qualities are, I, I feel like I could, I could, I could, I could, I would dominate him. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds ridiculous. I, I know it does, but. I just felt like for my qualities, they hadn't, they never saw anything like me <laughs> in Europe, you know, and, and and that's I used that to my advantage. Yeah, yeah. There's something really interesting I think that's come out of this conversation, which is that you know Peter felt almost lucky, right, to be playing for England, mm. and you've been very honest about that. Whereas you know you've got like a. Rolls Royce footballer, which what you were referred to as, who almost expected to play for England because you were at the absolute top of your game. Yet for Peter, there was freedom playing for England. For you, there was restriction playing for England and I think that comes down to expectations so I would love to know from the three of you what this tag of golden generation did or didn't do for all of you the golden generation 
the burden was probably on Rio more, John. I think I was on the cusp of that. I played 56 times, but if I went and done something, scored a goal or, or made a goal and assisted it, it was everyone pat me on the back, but it wasn't expected of me. Wayne Rooney, the, the, the spine of the team, bore the brunt of that. Mm. You know? But it, 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 in the Premier League, these boys were, were it was super hum, human levels. You know, It was yeah. like Rio and JT, like Lamps and Stevie, mm. uh, Rooney, Owen. Mm. You know, what they did, that spine in the, in the Premier League was so unbelievable that everyone just assumed that that would happen for England mm. and they'd all be the same at, and doing it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's hard, it was hard to replicate. I grew up watching John Barnes and Chris Waddle for England, two of the best, most talented players of their generation, booed for England. Yeah. yeah. Told they shouldn't be playing. So when I got into the England team and we were labelled the golden generation, it wasn't our fault. It just was, it was labelled, we were labelled it. It was almost like, well, I've seen this before. I've heard this before. I've seen big talents before me, better players than me, booed and, and told they shouldn't play for England. So I can't moan about it. But I didn't find it a huge burden. It was just main, mainly in press conferences when people would talk about it, it would come up. I'd never thought about it outside of that. Um, but I think some people dealt with it different. Some people felt that pressure a bit more. Um, probably more attacking players as well because there's an expectancy you've got to go and produce something a lot of defenders are reacting to people's movements and, and strikers whereas as a, an attacking player you've got to go out there and score and if you don't you're meant to be the golden generation so um, it's difficult for them I'm sure more than myself So knowing everything you know um, having pulled on the shirt for your country so many times as we approach another World Cup what is the message you would like to put out there not just to the England manager and his staff and the players but also to the public and also to the media about what needs to be done to release the shackles to release the pressure to allow expression and freedom at an international level because I think until we can get to that point then it's always going to be hard for the players I think they're doing it fantastically well I think we're so quick to criticise this England team that have got to a semi-final to, to, to a final um, of major tournaments well, maybe that's what we should stop doing then I yeah. think we should celebrate them I really do I, I, I feel like there is um, you know a lot of stick for a manager that has done incredibly well like something mm. that we couldn't achieve we couldn't we couldn't get to a final um, and yeah I, th I think there are certain things that we're going to criticise but he's England manager that's always going to be the case mm. some of the pressure situations you, see, you know Harry Kane's penalties or um, you know they just defending or getting into that situation where they they, they they get across the line in the final we were a whisker away a penalty away from winning it mm. you know let's not forget how far we've come under Gareth Southgate and I think that also goes back to the FA like how they've started developing players like mm. our, some of our young players now are the hottest talent Hugh around Bellingham. you know yeah. like German teams but I mean they're sniffing around our young players at under 17 level under 16 mm. level under 21 level under 18 level like, we've come a long way mm. you know we used to, Spain, we looked at Spain's model and we were like you know this is the players we want to produce we're producing naturally gifted footballers now and I think you know we should celebrate that I think there's probably as many, if not more, scouts at England games in the youth system than like places like Germany, yeah. France, Spain now. And that tells you the development of, the, of, our, of our youth system has been nothing short of magnificent. So I agree with Crouchy wholeheartedly. You've got to celebrate that. And what Gareth Southgate has created there has been nothing short of phenomenal. It's, it's, it's compared to what we're talking about, what we went through. And if you compare this to what we've been witnessing for the last two tournaments, we should be sitting and saying, thank God for Gareth Southgate and his mm. team. We can all sit here and, and, and pick apart his tactics and say that he, Joe don't agree with this, I don't agree with that, Crash, you don't agree with this. That's fine, that's part of football. I think Gareth Southgate would allow that and say, you know what, that's, that's, that's part of the course. 
But to sit here and say we should get rid of him after what he's done, I think it's, it's like it's absolutely and crazy. And the players yeah. will see that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think they, that, that then filters to the yeah. players and then the nervousness from maybe from the manager that yeah. might be subconscious, they then yeah. feel that. And then that affects the squad. So as media, as fans, support them. For, yeah. for Remember the feeling that we had in the, around the, the, the stadiums when we were all going to the games in the Euros? Remember the feeling around the country, what mm-hmm. that done people going off school businesses closing for their moments mm. like that's because of what that team done we quickly forget far yeah. too often yeah well said I just think we need to remember what these boys have done we need to remember that and, and also I think it's a bit like when you play poker and you're, you know you push your hands in and there's nothing you can do we're, 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 to, we're here now we haven't had a good run in we've got Gareth, Gareth Southgate's done a great job and we're in so if, if my message to the fans the media anyone who's got anything of a connection with England is look these are your sons your brothers the kids on your estates who are going there they've come through all of the adversity to become England players they put a body of work together and now they're going to a World Cup which we which really we know they can win we know they got a chance right so you just need to put everything aside like I said we'll all sit there and have a different system and a different way of playing to Gareth Southgate it's irrelevant Gareth's the manager now let's all get behind him. All them players, send them players to Qatar, knowing that they've got the whole country behind them. Now, the fans, the media, the ex-players. You know, if you send them there with that message, and there's going to be difficult moments. We're not going to go and win a tournament, and they're not going to be a hairy moment. We might have to come through some adversity. Someone might get sent off. It might be a penalty shootout. But rest assured that we got a manager who's ticked every box, who's had sleepless nights because he's a proud Englishman. And he's done everything he can within his power. And all the people at St. George's Park and the FA and whoever's coached these kids right through, they've all done the what the best they've can. And that's all we can ask for. And go there and support them and, and, and enjoy. Because one, when someone does it, it's going to be incredible. So Gavard told us that one of the things that he's started doing is bringing former players back mm. in to present shirts to the squad the night before games. If you were invited back in and you've done it, and if you could, well, what was the one message then that you delivered to the squad? I absolutely melted. I don't get nervous, like, you know, but I had to go in. I was working doing the game, and Gareth said, Would you give the shirt to um, Callum Hudson Adoy and another lad who'd made their debut just before the kickoff, like an hour and a half before the kickoff? And I've not been in an England dressing room for like a good seven, eight years, but in my head, I'm thinking that's that's a breeze, like you know, just that they're my co- they're my peers, my colleagues play football with them. They're only footballers. I've got in there, the legs started shaking. <laughs> I started stuttering. I went. I was like, oh, I absolutely. <laughs> I just the lads must have been looking at me, thinking, who is this geezer? Stuttering, like, stuttering. I was all Shows over the what gaff. England does to you, even like today. Yeah. Well, I like Damien's question. If you were able to give one message <laughs> to those lads, what would what would the message be if you went in there? No fear. Don't have any fear. Like shackles off one opportunity to go to this World Cup and win it go out there and just do your thing oh my message to the team would be we're going to there's going to be lots of trials and tribulations in this tournament we don't know what what we're going to face you know we're prepared for everything but go out there and the one thing when, when we get on that plane to leave Qatar with the trophy or without a trophy you make sure that you have no regrets you, you live it from now until then so when you're 15 years down the line working in media, you know, we can all pat you on the back as legends. I'll go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I think, like, lastly, last thing I think for, for, for the teams, for the players, I think you have to expect criticism. I think far too many players 
and people that are involved in the game nowadays is almost like, oh, you, you shouldn't say that about me. I 100% agree. If it's personal, it's over the line. It's too far. But if we're talking tactics and the way you, your game is and whatnot and about the 90 minutes, you're an open book. You should be sitting there and going, you know what? If I can take anything out of it, great. If I don't agree with it, close the book, move on. Don't take these things personal. Expect it, especially in a tournament. When you're in that bubble, expect the criticism that's going to come and use it as fuel. Yeah, I, I do think sort of like, sort of hop back on to where we were playing, but I do think some of the, some of the stuff was was below the belt like like God, some yeah. of the some of the things were were nasty oh, weren't they? I remember personally going through a lot a lot my mum stopped buying the newspapers yeah. like, like what, what uh, like caricatures and things like yeah, that yeah like <laughs> just yeah. complete mick taking you know like schoolboy stuff you know but like it affects you it becomes a thing you know and like I think it was it was definitely an issue for me I I, I I struggled in what way what do you mean uh, well I went from playing you know for Southampton then as soon as you get in the England squad like things are um, are heightened obviously then I went to Liverpool and I went for a spell of not scoring goals which was well documented uh, and now I just became a figure of fun like instantly right. and then uh, yeah and obviously you got to remember my mum and dad are in the crowd and um, I remember coming on at Old Trafford and getting booed by my by the own, my own fans and um, it was probably a little bit of that between Liverpool and Man United like that kind of rivalry but that was obviously crept into the stands so my mum and dad and sister are in the crowd and the whole England the whole stand and the whole the whole stadium are, are booing me because of you know maybe a little campaign sort of against me mm. to not be in England squad let's be honest right I'm I'm like, 24 year old kid right I'm getting booed by my own fans and I'm thinking about my mum as I'm coming on to play for England were you? Yeah, yeah I'm, that was the first she, start. Well, she's, she's in tears, you know, and I know she, I knew she knew it was upset her, and she didn't come to an England game for the next five, six times. Um, but these are all things that sort of going on behind behind the scenes. But for me personally, obviously, I don't show any weakness. I'm like, yeah. I come on the pitch and I do as well as I can, and I don't show, I don't say to any of the lads like, "You weren't a game you scored last year against Jamaica." No, was it? it wasn't. I wish it was. <laughs> but uh, but like I say, like that, I had to sort of deal with that, and then. I, I'm obviously really proud of myself for, for sort of coming back from that and then and then showing those people like you know coming through at Liverpool scored, started to score again and then mm. staying in the England squad and playing at two World Cups after that you know like that for me is a, is a great sense of achievement well there's that famous story that Jack Charles <clears throat> when he was first picked for England he went to Alf Ramsey and said to him like why have you picked me and Jack and Alf Ramsey said I don't pick the best players I pick the right players so what would you describe mm. are the right characteristics then for the right England players to to succeed? Personality. Personality above. And what I mean by that, I mean a player who's going to go and demand the ball, demand to be put on the spot, on the spotlight. You know, it could be a centre-half, whether he's the one in the last five minutes who, who you know when that ball's going to come in, he's going to put his face in the play, right area and get the ball. It's going to be a midfielder. When, when we're losing 2-0 against Germany, who's going to come on, demand the ball when Wembley's turning. You know, it's a centre forwarder, you know, when he goes through one-on-one, he's going he's gonna to choose the right thing. The players, you've got the personality above the ability and then you need to look at the, you've done that consistently. On that subject though, do you think that um, what, what you're touching on there is the right, it's the right player for that particular game or uh, that particular personality? But do you think that you know, all the players that we had, it, maybe it might not fit the right system, oh, but yeah. all those players would just fit in because they're mm. such good players. You know, do you think we could have perhaps dropped 
one of those sort of Galacticos, if you mm. like, in the Premier League and played an Owen Hargroves, yeah. you know, or, 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 or dropped one of the forwards or, you know, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we, we felt, I felt like, and it was a, it was a situation that was leveled at us quite a lot. Yeah. We're just putting all the best players together yes. and going, crack yeah, on yeah, that, that definitely happened but, I, but I, I do think that, and, and you could have affected that by playing a different you, you could have appeased that by playing a different shape yeah. Yeah, if exactly. we had a diamond in midfield or yeah. created a free to create overloads in midfield you, it might have worked but I totally agree with you I don't think the managers were strong enough at the time to go right hold on Bex you got to sit on the bench to drop or, Steven, or, yeah. or Frank go on you got to sit on the bench it just yeah. was almost like I can't do that I remember my when I first started playing we played Northern Ireland and uh, it was away at home, we won. We were nil. It was nil nil leading up to the game, and I was playing really well. And we, but it was Speck, Stevie, Frank, and me in the midfield. I spoke to Kieran Dyer after the game, and it was after after I think I think I scored the, the opening goal after three or four minutes. And Kieran and I, but I was playing well. Do you know, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you're playing well, and I was. It was coming, but uh, Kieran said to me, Sven said to me, "Go and warm up. You're coming on for Joe." Do you know what I mean? But that would that was Sven's mindset. I can't take even though Joe's outperforming them in this game. I can't take mm. them off, and Joe's looking like he's going to open up. In the end, I scored the goal. We went on to win the game three or four one, and Kieran sat down. But I wouldn't have known that Kieran come up to me and said to me that you was coming off. You know, do you mm. know what I mean? I was like, Fuck. so like that's the pressure probably. Well, that's what we were about. Like, yeah. We felt that we had to work like Extra I have to score in every single game yeah. because I know that if I don't. I'm not coming back. <laughs> I think to go back to your one, the question about what a player needs um, when you're playing for England, I think the, the ability to to forget mistakes quickly yeah. at that level, yeah, there there can be. I've seen top players come through into the England squad or players that are terrorising the Premier League at a, a certain point in their career, and they get to the England squad even just in training, forget the game, and they make mm. a mistake and they do not recover, and you think, hold on. That's the difference. It's, it's there, up there. Get that right in terms of, okay, if I make a mistake, erase it as quickly as possible and don't let it have a hangover and you move on and you can build your performance off the strength or something like that. And far too many have that hangover. Very good. Mm. Listen, gentlemen, thank you so much for that conversation. Great to reminisce, great to reflect. And yeah. I hope there's something in there that people will hear and it will inform them about how to deal with the modern generation of England players and who knows what will happen in the next few weeks, eh? And if they don't win it, will cane them. <laughs> <laughs> Damien. Jake. In some ways, I'm sad to sit and have that conversation for 45 minutes. And, you know, Peter obviously has great fond memories. Joe, um, maybe a bit. But, you know, Rio particularly, for a winner who won so much at club level, like it's sad that that was a relatively negative sort of memory of playing for your country from those guys yeah I think you can divide it up into three things that they spoke about there some of it was around the culture and the environment some of it was about tactics and then the third bit was around the mentality of the fear that existed there you know and that what we've seen through our interviews with Gareth and Pippa Grange and Eric Dyer somebody in that squad that steps have been taken to remedy all three of those areas that what the three guys we've just sat with didn't experience. I think in some ways it's great to have this conversation now ahead of another World Cup because I feel that all the things that they had problems with, Gareth and the FA have worked really hard to solve. But in other ways, it blows my mind. I remember watching this England team thinking these guys are so good they're going to go and win a tournament. And here they sit, you know, 15, 20 years later saying, well, we didn't really talk about culture. Well, we didn't really work on 
tactics. Well, we weren't very flexible. Well, certain players were always going to be played. Well, the manager was getting David Beckham to sign his shirt and that made me think, this is ridiculous. You know, all these things were going on or a lot of things weren't going on. And you think you missed winning tournaments with the Paul Scholes and the Stephen Gerrards and the Frank Lampards and the Rios and the Joes and the, and the Crouchies and the Wayne Rooneys. Like that is a missed generation yep. of potential England success because of culture. Yeah, definitely. And I think it proves then that I think that it, this topic is moving into the mainstream to see that talent isn't enough. You know, talent sets the floor, but character and environment sets the ceiling for what you can do. And unless that's taken seriously and addressed, as we've seen through Gareth and lots of other national teams doing it, you don't achieve the potential that you undoubtedly have. And I just hope that they respond in the right way. And I just hope the public and the media and you know people like me that sit on the telly and talk about football, I hope we all respond in the right way. When you hear Peter quite emotionally talking about what it actually does to you when you're getting criticised, and we can look at someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold in the modern game and he will be feeling the same emotions that Peter's feeling and then we expect them to play well and then we pillory them more when they don't play well. Well, of course you're not going to play well when that's what's happening to you. Well, how often do we have that conversation, empathy over opinion? It's so easy to have an opinion on why Trent Alexander-Arnold isn't playing well, whereas if we can empathise with a young lad in his early 20s, you know, under intense periods of pressure, coping with that and learning how to deal with the spotlight of course he's going to have setbacks and difficulties. And I think if we can understand and empathise with that, we'll suddenly have a healthier culture for other young talents to thrive. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. Jack White, welcome to the High Performance Podcast. Is that um, a phrase you ever thought you'd hear? No, actually not. Um, It's still kind of echoing around my head as you said that. Well, look, one of the highlights for us is... um, is speaking to people who listen to this podcast. I'm always fascinated by how people find us in the first place. How did you stumble across high performance? Uh, friend of a friend just just told me about it. Um, and if I'm honest, when I first heard what high performance was, I had a very different impression of what it turned out to be. So I actually tuned in for one reason. And the reason I still tune in now is actually very different. Tell us more. So I initially tuned in. I mean, my early professional career has been pretty intense. Um, so I was working for a big global organization, Microsoft, and I tuned in because I want to climb. And I was like, I want to climb to the top, high performance. This works for me. I'm going to find ways to not hack the system, but continue to grow. And what kept me tuned in is it actually opened my mind to say, high performance is far more than that. High performance is high happiness, as you guys say so often. And that's what keeps me coming back is that I actually use the podcast to reflect listen to other points of view and kind of broaden my mind more so than like, how do I get ahead? How do I climb? So it's been a weird transition, but I'm really glad it happened. So what was the first episode then that you tuned in to listen to? Oh, goodness me, you're testing me, Damien. I think it was probably one of the Formula One boys. I can't remember exactly who it was. Um, But I listened to a podcast called Beyond the Grid and uh, one of them had come up and the guys had said, hey, go listen to High Performance Podcast, you'll like it. So I started in relative comfort zone um, and have moved on. But some of my favourite speakers are far beyond those kind of words. Like one of the most recent ones, a guy called Mo Goddard, who I thought I'd never met, never kind of heard of, but loved everything he talked about his son, everything he talked about, the notions of live for now, live for playing, don't focus on that end goal. Roxy Nafusi, again, amazing in terms of her visualisation and manifesting your goals. Guys like Greg Jackson, who, again, would never have listened to before, but actually... The angle he came at, superhuman. I love the idea of you are my equal. So like 
I've spread my listening much further afield than I would have done if I hadn't listened to a podcast like this. So obviously the people that are listening to this conversation at the end of one of our episodes have already found high performance, right? So there's a reason why they're already here. I think one of the big challenges for people is how you adopt what you hear on the podcast into what you do in your everyday life. Have you got any advice for people when it comes to that? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because you always ask this, listen, um, your interviewees, like what's high performance means to you. And I think as I've gone through the different episodes and time spent listening to you both and your various guests, how I've started to apply it is, well, what does high performance mean to me? Like every single definition that I hear is, is super subjective. And I think that's a lot of the core of what high performance is. So for me, it's all around actually defining what that is for me and then applying it to my life. And for me, it's maximum effort and minimal struggle. So whatever area of my life I'm looking at, how am I putting the maximum effort in and how am I turning that into the least resistance possible? So that could be my relationships. It could be within work. It could be socializing. It could be my passion points. How do I set myself up for success in every way possible? And that can be in many different forms, but using some of the skills and areas of focus that your different interviewees talk about has helped me really do that. And what's been the most notable skill that you've taken from one of our guests that you've been able to apply directly to your world? So uh, Greg Hoffman has the amazing three non-negotiables, which I've written on my wall, which are be empathetic, be curious and play to win. And that I apply across everything in my life. And I think it's one of the most succinct ways to describe high performance, but you can apply that to literally any scenario that you're in. And I think it's fantastic. Man, I love these conversations. And what about Jack, right? When there is struggle? Because I think one of the things that we try and talk about as well is that life isn't struggle-free, particularly things that are worth having they don't come for free. So yes, you can want to give it your all and to do it with the least resistance. But are you also accepting that sometimes there is resistance and that's also okay? Yeah, I think I just learned to enjoy the resistance and recognize it. Like, I think the best lesson again is someone like Mo Goddard. It's like you live to play the game and know that playing the game is part of, well, really the main focus of why you're here. So every time I see resistance, it's a learning opportunity. And for me, like I want to push myself into uncomfortable scenarios enjoy that discomfort and then recognize the growth off the back of it. So really, if anything, I'm looking forward to resistance rather than having to kind of change my perspective on it. I love that. Jack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, we wish you the very best of luck with everything. Um, Keep spreading the word about high performance, eh? Thanks guys. Take care. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening to today. Don't forget, if you want to join us for our live theatre show, then you can do so. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com for tickets. We're visiting nine cities around the UK in 2023, and we would love to meet you. Thanks so much for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. The last couple of weeks, we've broken all of our records for listens and shares and downloads and views. So please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from high performance. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work on today's episode. Thanks too to BT Sport. But most of all, thanks to you. Remember, it's all there for you. Chase world-class basics and don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.